0: Hi Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 349. Split rail fences. Fences, like houses, tell a lot about the people who made them. The stone walls and well-kept hedgerows of England speak of stability and long-established patterns. It's all about patterns. Early visitors to the booming American colonies described the shabby appearance of the log houses with zigzag split rail fences. The snake or worm fence was so characteristic of the new American landscape that it was commonly known as the Virginia fence. This sort of fence gets its stability and its other names from the same source as the serpentine wall. One great advantage of the snake fence is that it can be built with little more than an axe. You simply split a 10-foot log into rails and lay them crisscross on the ground. No post holes to dig or joints to cut. Since it has no permanent connection with the ground, it's best to race each intersection up on a rock. The fence can be moved about at will or in an opening made at any point. The simple snake fence becomes unstable after it reaches about 10 rails high but can still be raised higher by using crossed rails and riders at every intersection or lock. These add enough height to keep horses from jumping the fence, which was the uh, the key factor for protection. One of the earliest encounters with principles of rural economy involved the snake fence, passing a zigzag rail fence near Clifton Forge, Virginia. So someone... Obviously echoing the words of his father remarked, snake fence is waste land. In one way, I guess it's true, it's difficult to plow and plant in the zigs and zags. Grazing animals, though, get in there just fine, and the side away from the animals, which cannot be cut, becomes a refuge for wildflowers and birds. Even if the corners can't be cultivated, some stray seed is bound to take hold there. The best corn and the best tobacco was that which grew and had to be hand-picked because it grew in the jam of the fence. As appropriate as the snake fence was to the new world, it was like the log house, something new and unfamiliar to the English mind. If you think about it, a snake fence is simply a log house that has been stretched out. For an Englishman, the more familiar manner of the house building was to to use up-straight posts with holes cut out in them to receive the horizontal beams. This is the way he built houses, doors, and windows, and it is how he built his fences also. A straight-line post and rail fence is not self-supporting, and holes must be dug. This was originally done with shovels alone and later, with the iron pikes and dipper spoons that preceded the now-familiar post hole digger. The post must be made from the heartwood of a resistant species in which they are to endure. Cedars, chestnut, walnut, sassafras, catawba, and Osage orange are all commonly used for post. One most favorite woods is the black locust, which is reputed by some to last two years longer than stone. Others say that it will last twice as long as the whole. One man even claimed that it will last two lifetimes and says he knows because he's seen it. The ends of the posts are often charred in a fire in an attempt further to protect them from decay. The utility of this activity is questionable, however, as the only effect is to sterilize the wood if fungi is already present. The charcoal on the burnt surface of the wood will not decay, but it has no strength, and is not an effective barrier against the decay of organisms always present in the soil. At most, charring buys an extra year or so. Once the vertical posts are set in the ground, the rails must be set between them. Fixing the rails to the post with nails would not make a very strong connection this is a practicable method only when the fencing with lighter sawn boards rails needed to be housed in holes or mortises through the posts and there lies the problem with this type of fence chopping the narrow holes through the uprights is not an easy task but this is largely the way it was done until the advent of the spiral auger at the end of the 18th century early augers were nowhere near as easy to use as the spiral auger with the center lead screw. The spiral auger will start easily on a curved surface and pull itself on through, enabling one to work faster and on rougher wood. Simply bore two holes and split out the wood in between to make the mortise. Then thin down the ends of the rails with the axe and assemble. Both the snake fence and the post and rail fence have their analogies in portable fences called hurdles, used mainly for for folding sheep and other small stock. They are more common in Britain than on this side of the Atlantic. One reason is the difference in agricultural practices between here and there. The crowded isles need much greater control and more intensive land use practices than have been necessary in the comparative vastness of America. Still, hurdles are useful any time it is necessary to move animals about and still maintain control over them. As when we take the goats into town on market day on the green, we are often set up near vegetable stalls and a strong pen is essential. There are two sorts of hurdles, the woven hurdle and the five bar gate hurdle. The waddle hurdle, as it is called, is the elder of the two. As they are woven rather than jointed, their manufacture requires only the most minimal of tools, little more than a sharp blade. The production of wattle hurdles is associated with a specific sort of woodland growth called copus. Copus refers to the forest of shoots that rise from the still living stumps of the harvested lumber. Even when trees were too large to be used effectively with primitive tools, One could always kill the upper part of the tree by wringing the trunk with an axe. The well-developed root system of the tree would then put all its energy into sending up sprouts from the stump and roots. These shut up quickly and hence were very straight, not free, and easily worked by hand splitting. Like willow for basketry, coppice wood for hurdles, was the first harvested for the wild and later cultivated to ensure a steady source of high-quality material. In Tudor England, the wool industry, and hence sheep control, became so important that hazelwood coppices were established solely for the production of wattle hurdles. Careful management can keep a coppice productive for generations. The visual rotation or lapse between harvest is several years Production hurdle makers must work close to the coppice as the weaving requires the wood to be fresh, green, and pliant. The tools of the wattle hurdle maker are a heavy hooked knife called a bill hook and a seven foot long heavy timber with ten holes bored at equal intervals along its length to hold the uprights in place while the weaving goes on. This timber or at least the pattern of holes for the upright is best made in a curve to keep the hurdle stiff as it is being woven. Curved, it can support a considerable weight. Left flat, it can take and would buckle immediately. When the completed hurdle is removed from the timber and stacked to dry, the curve flattens out and the tension holds the weaving tight. There is another trick to making hurdles or any other item that involves making a sharp bend back on the stock. When you turn the split hazel weavers about the end uprights, give them a solid spiral twist as you bend them back around. This twist makes the fibers of the wood behave as though they were a rope and allows them to take a bend without splintering. The bottom and top courses of the weaving need to be different from the infilling. Two rods are intertwined around the uprights like a multi-strand rope with sticks stuck through it. The uprights on either end need to be somewhat stouter than that on the other eight and left longer and pointed on their bottom ends so that they may be driven into the ground to hold the hurdle up. I don't get much call for waddle hurdles and it's a good thing for the material to make them is not generally available. Gate hurdles, however, are always in demand. The sheep people can never get enough of them. A hurdle of any kind needs to be both strong and light. Cleft oak provides the best combination of strength, light weight, and decay resistance. All their parts are split rather than sawn from the log, preserving the integrity of the grain from end to end, flowing around knots or bends. To equal their strength in sawn material, one would need pieces of greater dimension and weight, which will require more energy to make and move about making gate hurdles is a pleasant undertaking from start to finish they are generally six feet long by three feet high start with the fresh white oak logs other species will do but this is all that most have ever used in six foot lengths split the log in half and then in half again and so on once you get down to pieces about a hand breadth thick you can start to open the split with the with a wedge axe or fro enough to get a hand and a foot and tear it apart. Keep splitting until you have all the bars that you will need, five or six for each hurdle, measuring about two and a half inches by one half inch. Fail links can be used for the braces and centre uprights. The stout end posts should be made one inch by two and a half inches and four feet long. All the stocks should be hard of oak. Any white sapwood left on will quickly lead to rot and ruin. All the posts will be mortised into the same manner, so you will need to save them by making a guide stick with notches or nails at the appropriate points to speed the layout. Leave about 10 inches on the bottom of the post, the part that will go into the ground, before the slot for the bottom rail and about 4 inches above the mortise for the top rail. Since young, unruly animals are usually short as well. The bottom rails need to be spaced closer together than those toward the top. The mortises can be quickly chipped out with a chisel in the fresh wood. But another way, and one that I quite enjoy, employs a brace and bit, and what is called a hurdle maker's twivel. It is called a twivel or twibill because it is a trouble or double-ended tool with two bills. One of the ends of the T-shaped tool is shaped like a sharply hooked chisel, the other like a broad knife. To make the mortise, bore two spaced holes through the post at the ends of where each mortise will go. Then, with the hooked end of the twibble, reach in one of the holes and lever out the wood in between. It may take two or three bites to get it all out. Clean up any mess that is left with the end knife. When the mortises are chopped with a chisel, the posts need to be firmly supported on a bench or stump. When working with a bit stock and twibble, however, you can hold the work by springing it between two horizontal bars and the top of a small stump. This holds the post firmly and gives the hook of the twibble and the knife space to work through without hitting the bench top. With all the posts have been mortised through, Chop their bottom ends to point, so they point toward the ground and knock the corners off the end, And because when, the, when you blow with them out, it may tend to break them off in the ground. Now set the rails in place with a half inch or so of their ends protruding through the mortises. The top rail, the bottom rail, and the third rail from the bottom are held in their mortises by oak pegs, driven through holes bored through the sides of the post. The other rails can be left alone free. The center upright of the diagonals are held to the rails by nails that are clinched over the side. The best sort of nail for this is called a clout nail. They're designed to punch through the wood without splitting, and upon hitting an iron plate placed on the underside of the two pieces to be joined, to clinch themselves. Clout nails should be available through hardware store dealers. But wire nails will do just fine as well as you know how to use them. They may tend to split the wood, but this can usually be avoided by blunting one point or pre-drilling the hole. Get the center upright in first and then place the diagonal braces by eye. Hurdles will support themselves. The pointed bottom ends of the uprights can be forced into the ground by the weight of your foot on the lower rail. The tops of the uprights may be joined by cords or wire loops. A more permanent structure can be had by driving stouter posts into the ground at the juncture of each of the hurdles. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out.